Let's read this together. 2 Timothy 1, 12-17. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent person, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're, we are thankful to be called Your children. We're thankful to be gathered together today and filled with Your Spirit, united in the Spirit. We're thankful to have Your Word inspired by the Spirit. May we, may we see the gracious working that You bring about in the lives of Your servants. May we long for it for ourselves. May we see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. May we be convicted for our, our sin, for our lack of passion, for our, our falling short of Your glory. And may we, may we rest in the finished work of Christ. May we delight in His righteousness and His atonement and then long for His cleansing and empowering work to craft us into vessels fit for Your use. Father, use these words to stir up within us holy desires that we may seek You with our whole hearts and seek to be used by You in a way that brings You great glory. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Last week, we began a brief character overview of the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. And uh, before we leave the pastoral ministry or pastoral epistles, I felt it would be helpful for us to take an overview and certainly be reminded of many things that we've talked about as we've studied pastoral epistles. We've been studying through 15 qualities that easily come to mind when you meditate on the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul which certainly proved him to be a faithful servant of Christ. And then also certainly uh, in, in, invo- invites us to imitate his example. The Apostle Paul himself urged this as we looked at last week. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1, I be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. As I think we look at this, I think it's important not only to keep in mind that these are precious character qualities to seek to imitate, but to remember very carefully what it is in the life of the Apostle Paul that that caused him to demonstrate these qualities. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 15.10? He said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So as we take these character qualities to heart and pray over them and seek them, let us always remember, even through this study this morning, that it is nothing but the grace of God at work within us that would cause any of these qualities to be borne out in our lives. So the main, the main idea that I have for this particular study is simply taken from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. By the power of Christ's Spirit and grace, let us imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. Last week, we looked at the first five. And this morning, it's my hope that we can look at the second five. Let me review them with you. Last week, we talked about Apostle Paul's genuine humility. You can see all of that in your outline that I provided for you in in the bulletin. Number two, boasting in Christ even through weakness. Three, dependence on Christ's grace. Huge theme in the letter of the Apostle Paul. 
a heart full of thanksgiving, sacrificial love for others. This morning, we're going to look at 6-10, through 10, which is relentless gospel devotion. You might call this point also a love for God's Word. 7, effective discipleship and mentoring. 8, selfless ministry motivations. 9, labor to unburden others. 10, resilience in various circumstances. Lord willing, next week we'll look at 11-15, through 15, willing to do unpleasant ministry. Eagerness to suffer for Christ's sake. Spiritual warfare warrior. Persevering eternal perspective. And then finally, exultant doxology, which we could say is a love for Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, let's look at number six, first of all here. So, we're beginning with number six. Relentless gospel devotion or a love for God's Word. I don't think any of us can argue with that. As we read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, he had a relentless devotion to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I I had to spell this out in some detail for you. This will be my longest point, I imagine. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think about the Apostle Paul's relentless Gospel devotion is a devotion to accuracy. Gospel accuracy. This is something that seems to be so easily tossed aside nowadays, more than I can ever remember, that attention to the accurate details of the gospel, whether teaching a child or even giving the gospel to someone who's never heard it before, accuracy is essential. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1? I think this text comes to mind first and foremost when I consider Paul's devotion to gospel accuracy. Again, like last week, we're going to be moving to several different texts rather than staying in one text, which we normally do. So if you you feel a little bit lost with the turning, just simply write down the text and then listen as I read it. Galatians chapter 1, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. But the first thing I'm thinking about is, is Paul's own personal devotion to gospel accuracy, his giving the gospel to others. He wanted to do so with accuracy. Notice the very beginning of his calling there, Galatians 1 verse 11, for I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, because I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted 
with the gospel to circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. One of the things I just want to point out to you from this text is after Paul had received revelation from Christ, after he had already been preaching for years, what did he do? Verse verse 2, he says, I wanted to present the gospel that I was preaching to these men in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And of course, what happened? They all perceived that the gospel that Paul had received was indeed from Christ and the same gospel as theirs. Now that's, that's an impressive kind of self-examination that Paul's opening himself up to. Look, see if I'm preaching the right gospel. And Peter and James and John said, yes, this is the same gospel. Now, that's impressive to me. And I'm thankful for Paul's willingness to do that. Not just even on the basis of what he had received from Christ, you know, certainly he's saying, I, I, may, I received this from Christ. This isn't, this isn't man's gospel. This is God's gospel, but I'm a man. I'm open to failure. I'm open to, to misinterpreting here. And so he opened himself to self-examination. Why? Because he was devoted to gospel accuracy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, which you can see on the screen. Do your best, Timothy. And this certainly presents Paul's own heart and his handling of the Word of God. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. A devotion to gospel accuracy is essential as a servant of Christ. Secondly, he was also devoted to clarity. Clarity in the gospel. Look at this text in particular. This is Paul's prayer that he invites the Colossian church to pray for him. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of the Gospel on account of which I am in prison. And part of the prayer is not only that God may open a door, but that also Paul would make it clear, which is how he says I ought to speak. Gospel clarity that the gospel would be clear when he proclaims it. Not just opportunity, but clarity. Now, I think of that as simply a prayer that we should all own as well as we share the gospel. We may have the gospel accurately, but it's not always true that we speak it clearly so that the one who is listening to us can understand it. And certainly, Paul not only prayed for this and taught this sort of uh, passion, but he lived it out. What letter in the Apostle Paul's writings comes to your mind, particularly when you think about a clear presentation of the gospel? The first letter that comes to my mind is the letter of Romans. How many times has has the Church of Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, walked through what we have often called the Romans Road to explain the gospel? There's a reason for that, isn't there? God enabled Paul to speak the gospel with clarity. What you find in the letter of Romans is is the clarity of human sinfulness. It's crystal clearly laid out. You know, when we think of Romans 1 or 2 or 3, we think of the clarity of human sinfulness, the violation of the law, the inability of the human being to seek after God. We think of the clarity of divine judgment that's laid out. The wrath of God, Romans chapter 1. The wages of sin, Romans chapter 6. We think of the clarity of the mercy of God on the cross laid out in Romans chapter 3, 21-26. There you see the righteousness of Christ. You see the atonement, the taking away, the carrying away of the wrath of God. These are things that are not complicated concepts. They're essential elements of the gospel that can be spoken very, very simply and clearly. And Paul does. He lays them out. We think of the clarity of faith 
in Romans 4. The clarity of justification explained in Romans 5. And so by the enabling of God, Paul labored to make the teaching of the gospel of God, of man, of sin, of the law, simple and clear. Not only was Paul devoted to gospel accuracy, clarity, but also to boldness. You see this over and over again by way of example. Let me give you maybe an example or two, and I can give you several references. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is the account of Paul's conversion, and even at the very end of this chapter, when he's beginning to proclaim the gospel, by the grace of God, he has a great boldness, a confidence, a shamelessness when he is sharing the gospel. Look at verse 26. And I also want you to notice in these few texts that we read how God uses boldness in the proclamation of the gospel to affect conversion in the hearers. God uses all these things by His grace to open the hearts of the hearers. Verse 26, Acts chapter 9. And when He had come to Jerusalem, He attempted to join the disciples. This is speaking of, of Paul, still called Saul at this point. And they were all afraid of Him, for they did not believe that He was a disciple. But Barnabas took Him and brought Him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road He had seen the Lord who spoke to Him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we see Paul, even directly after his conversion, preaching boldly and the Lord working through that preaching. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. This is a classic pattern of the Apostle Paul that we see beginning in verse 44, where he would go to an area and immediately begin to teach the gospel in the public place of religious discussion, (coughs) which was, in that day, the synagogue. Verse 44, Acts 13.44, But when the Jews, I'm sorry, the, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the Lord had commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of, the high, of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of, from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were being filled with joy and filled and with the Holy Spirit. Well, there's many more texts like this throughout the the book of Acts. You can see it in Acts 14, 1 through 7, Acts 19, 1 through 10, Acts 26, 24 through 32. The Apostle Paul was given by the Spirit a filling of boldness to communicate the gospel. And the Lord used that for the furthering of the gospel and the building of the church. This is a well-known prayer that the Apostle Paul invites the Ephesian church to pray for him. It comes at the end of the text on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert 
with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and for me, pray for me, that words may be given to me, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is certainly Paul's heart. He speaks of that boldness in Romans 15, 14, and 16, 14 through 16. He speaks of it also in Philippians 1.14, if you want to jot down further references. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2. In fact, his boldness was certainly tested there. Why don't we, why don't we turn to that text, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2. We'll come back to this text also later on for another reason this morning. First Thessalonians 2 and verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't fruitless. It wasn't empty. It wasn't pointless. It was effectual. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. This, this text, second, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, is such an impressive, convicting, shaping text in my mind as I think through Paul's life here by the grace of God. He, was, he had been sorely tested and tried and treated badly in Philippi. You know, we might say like we often do, he was, he was coming out of the frying pan and heading into the fire. And he goes right into Thessalonica and experiences the same thing. And, and you, would, you would think that that would just knock the wind out of him in terms of his gospel proclamation. But by the grace of God, it did not. He had boldness in God. He had boldness in God to declare the gospel. Another aspect of his, of his uh, gospel devotion is also devotion to preaching and proclamation. And I'm not going to detail this text because we just went through it a few weeks or months ago. 2 Timothy 3, 14-4-8 is a wonderful text. And it's unfortunate sometimes that we take that chapter break between chapters 3 and 4. Paul is expressing to Timothy there that the, that the Scriptures have a power to bring someone to the knowledge of Christ for salvation. He goes on to, to explain the effect of the Word of God certainly the gospel on the hearers, that it makes a man mature. It has the power to convict and to confront and to exhort and to teach and train in righteousness. And it makes a man equipped for every good work. And so then, as a result, the, the logical flow of such a powerful word of, of Scripture and the gospel, Paul says, preach the word. And he explains then with what motivation and what method to preach the Word. Paul was certainly devoted to the preaching and proclamation of the Word. And then finally, under this point, he was devoted to the defense of the Gospel. He was devoted to the defense of the Gospel. Galatians chapter 1. Let's, let's turn back there. I think probably that text comes first and foremost to many of our minds when we consider Paul's relentless passion to defend the purity of the Gospel. And I just want to ask you, as we read this text, I want you to place this text in, into the modern church. Just do that. And think about someone actually saying this to a congregation today. There is such a strong reaction nowadays in many churches to such clear and direct and forceful and passionate gospel correction. It's something that we shouldn't shy away from in the ministry of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Think about someone standing in this pulpit saying that to you. Could you imagine that? I mean, I don't even talk like that very much. I read these texts to you. Maybe I need to talk like that more, but... By God's grace, I, I believe that you've been faithful to the gospel. But think about a church in our community that isn't faithful to the gospel and someone coming into the, the pulpit and saying, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly removed from the gospel and embracing something that isn't a gospel. What would happen on that Sunday morning? Could you imagine? That's what Paul's doing here. That's what he says. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would, be, I would not be a servant of Christ. He explains this so powerfully and clearly. He's committed to it all through this particular letter. Do we have that heart? Do we have that kind of heart for the Apostle Paul? And, and consider the passion that is behind that kind of heart. Is it a heart of revenge? Is it a heart of hurtful, hurtful pride? No, he, he is saying these things in the way that he is saying them out of an intense love for the church of Jesus Christ so that those who have been chosen by God will come to true faith in the Gospel. That generation after generation will hear the Gospel and believe, so that God would be glorified. We see this all through his letters. I think of, and we don't have to turn there, but I can just remind you of it, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1-11. through 11, the Paul, Paul starts out that letter, or that chapter, and he says, watch out for dogs. Watch out for the people who, who promote mutilation. Right? He is directly confronting impurities that are being added to the gospel in, that threatened the Philippian church. And he says, you consider my own life. I was a very zealous, passionate Pharisee keeping the law. He, he lists his, his Jewish pedigree. And he says, I count it all as refuse so that I may have Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness that comes from the law, but the righteousness of God that comes by faith. Paul was directly confronting adding any human righteousness to the Gospel in that chapter. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6-23, through another clear defense of the pure Gospel. He's, he's telling the Colossian people, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? Walk in Him rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith of overflowing with thanksgiving. And he says, are you, are, are you going to let anyone judge you and condemn you with mysticism and legalism and asceticism? He's attacking three different enemies of the Gospel. He says this all looks very impressive in terms of human religion, but it has no power in the overcoming of the flesh. Paul sets himself against any contamination of the Gospel relentlessly. He calls Timothy to the same thing in 1 Timothy 1, 3-11. He says to Timothy, you go to, you go to Ephesus and you command those elders there who are teaching wrongly to stop teaching. Isn't that something? Stop teaching false doctrine. Stop using the law unlawfully. We know what the law is for. The law is not given to save people. The law is given to expose sin so that you can run to Christ and hear the Gospel and be saved. Timothy owned that. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul again invited Timothy to proclaim the words that he had given to him and to defend them, to keep them pure, to guard them. So as we bring this particular point to some application, relentless gospel devotion, I want to ask you something this morning. Are you absolutely committed to these gospel values by the strength of Christ's indwelling Spirit? Accuracy. Clarity. Boldness. Proclamation. And defense. Is that something you own in your own heart as a follower of Jesus Christ? Does it matter to you very, very much as you speak the gospel to your children, your family members, 
your friends and neighbors, your co-workers, with each individual, that you are bold, that you are clear, that you are accurate. Now there's something that we must understand in all of this. Being devoted to gospel accuracy and clarity and boldness and defense does not mean that we are devoted to complicating the gospel. Sometimes that may be the thought of others about those who are seeking clarity and boldness and accuracy. But neither must we sacrifice accuracy, clarity, and boldness for being simple enough for anyone to understand. It's too easy for those striving for accuracy to become complicated. And it's too and those striving for simplicity to become inaccurate. And so this is why we say what Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? We are ministers of Christ. We need Christ's grace to be at work in us. And so by the enabling and lightening ministry of the Spirit, we can, as Christ's people, like Paul, relying on God's grace, proclaim and defend the Gospel with accuracy, clarity, and boldness. Let's own this desire and, and make it at least for the moment, a matter of prayer that God would work this in us for His glory. Secondly, this morning, effective discipleship and mentoring. Not only was Paul an effective communicator of the Gospel by the power of God, but he was also an effective disciple maker and mentor of men in the body of Christ. Now, I would say that we could look at maybe the most obvious men for a moment of the, the Apostle Paul's disciples. Who comes to your mind as the most obvious disciples of Paul? I would think that the most obvious ones are the three letters who bear the name of the man who was discipled by Paul. Three names. Of course, Timothy and Titus. And who's the third one? This is your quiz, that third one. Who's that third one? Philemon, right? There he is. <laughs> you got the answer. Yeah. So, Philemon. Think about that. Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 2, and 18. Paul speaks of my true child in the faith. This charge I entrusted you, Timothy, my child. He, he trained him. He spoke the gospel to him. He equipped him and then assigned ministry to him, holding him accountable and helping him to grow in it. First Timothy 1, I'm 2 Timothy 1 and verse 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1, he calls him his beloved child. My child, be strengthened by the grace. Timothy Timothy was was encouraged by Paul, not just given assignments, not just spoken the truth to, not just given instruction, but certainly encouraged, exhorted, urged, affirmed, and affection was certainly spoken to him. Philippians 2, I've read this to you a few times in the last few weeks. Philippians 2, 19-22, here's how Paul thought of Timothy He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, speaking to the Philippians, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul made Timothy his disciple and mentored him well and trained him to walk in a way that was faithful to the gospel. I think of Timothy's, or Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul says, You, however, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. <clears throat> That's a great couple of verses there. The Apostle Paul gave Timothy, he handed off to Timothy, and Timothy followed his teaching, his doctrine, right? His way of life, his aim, his goals, his, his motives, his ambitions in the Spirit, his faith, his trust in the Lord. His ability in dealing with others, his patience, his ability to endure circumstances, his love, Timothy owned it. Paul taught him all those things. And to the degree that Timothy could then say, 
in 1 Corinthians, or Paul could say about Timothy in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, that is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul was, by God's grace, such an effective mentor and disciple maker that he could send his disciple to the Corinthian church and he could know that the Corinthian church would hear the same things that Paul would teach them. And that's, that's a great blessing by the grace of God. That same thing was happening in the life of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 4, to my true child in a common faith. And certainly Paul assigned him to a difficult ministry as well in the island of Crete. Philemon, would you turn with me to the letter of Philemon? Philemon is a great body of truth, a letter that not only teaches us about true forgiveness, but also it's a great example of discipling someone through spiritual change. It's a powerful little letter. You know how you can do that with the letters of the apostles? You not only look at what they're saying and get the main point of the letter, but you can also kind of step back and look at their method. What are they doing to deliver this message? And I I commend that to you even with the letter of Philemon. You can see all the way through Timothy, or uh, Paul working with Philemon, helping him to come to a place where, where he is willing to forgive and receive back Onesimus. I'm just going to read a few verses to you. I would commend you to read this. Uh, through this week, and just consider Paul's discipleship of Philemon. Look at, look at verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him, receive Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul is not angry in his writing. He is urgent. He is appealing. He is calling for spiritual change based on spiritual relationship and fruitfulness, even in Philemon's life. And yet, he doesn't even come to that without first encouraging him. And For example, in verse 4-7, through he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in, that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is an incredible model of spiritual discipleship. What do you see in the life of the Apostle Paul as he mentors others? You, you, you look through letters like this and you can see certainly personal affection. You see the affirmation of God's work in that brother's heart. You see Paul affirming that. I see God at work in you. You see clear instruction. Clear instruction. Here's here's what to believe and here's how to walk in this particular situation. You see spiritual motivations. He doesn't just tell them what to do. He tells them why to do it. To fill their heart with spiritual zeal. He gives strong appeal. He doesn't doesn't browbeat His disciples, but He appeals, appeals to them by strong spiritual reasoning. He also gives them a faithful example. He calls them to imitate Him. And He gives them an appropriate assignment in order to test their abilities and their skills. And He follows that up with careful accountability. The Apostle Paul was a master disciple maker. A master mentor. One that that we can take to heart and watch and seek to imitate. Each of us who are in Christ must take this aspect of ministry to heart both in our families and in the larger body of Christ. Men are called to this, right? 2 Timothy 2, 2. We pass on to other men what we have received from the Lord. Women are called to this as well. Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. 
call women to pass on the faith to other women so that God would be glorified. And so this passion for discipleship and mentoring is integral to the faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, or number eight actually this morning, another aspect of the Apostle Paul's life in ministry is selfless ministry motivations. There's some phrases that, that I pull out of Paul's writings here that help me to understand as Paul did things, he had a singular focus. Now think of all the different kinds of motives that could have moved Paul into action. He could have been selfish. He could have been greedy. He could have been seeking the praise of others and so on. But one thing that he always keeps to heart is that he is consumed with one particular audience. Who is that audience? God, Jesus Christ. You see it in phrases like this. He says, before God, here's what I commend to you, or here's what I am doing, or in the presence of God. Or he might say, God is my witness. Or the Lord judges me. You see this throughout his letters. Notice a few of these texts. Galatians 1.10. We just read this one recently as he's defending the gospel. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That was behind his selflessness in his ministry. I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Even later on in the text, he says, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. I am seeking not a selfish motive, but selfless ministry motivations, particularly the pleasing of the one whose audience is the most important. 1 Timothy 5.21, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality in the presence of God of Jesus Christ, the elect angels. That, that was the motivation of the Apostle Paul that brought him to such selfless acts. He was mindful of God. 1 Timothy 6, 13 and 14, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. 2 Timothy 4.2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. 2 Corinthians 1.23-24, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lorded over you for your faith, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Again, Paul's selfless motive. I am rebuking you. I am working for you. I am serving you for your joy that they would stand firm in their faith. The reason that he was moved to that is because he knew constantly that God was his witness. He sought to please the Lord. And this is a great summary text of Paul's motivations that turned his motivations away from himself to God. 1 Corinthians 4, 1-5 through This is how one should regard us. Servants. Servants of Christ. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am, aware, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Was Paul concerned about his own well-being? No. Was Paul concerned about other people appreciating him and thinking well of him? No. 
What was Paul concerned about? The commendation from God who sees the purposes of his heart. He was totally consumed with one audience in all that he did. And that enabled him, by God's grace, to pursue selfless ministry motivation. He was consumed with one audience, but he was also enabled then by the Holy Spirit to minister the gospel selflessly. Would you look with me at 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians, And I want to show you what I think is maybe one of the most clarifying texts regarding Paul's motivations in the work of ministry. But before I look at chapter 2, which shows those, and we've been through this before, but I want to remind them, remind you of them. I want you to see how it came to be that Paul had those motives so that you can rest in the power of God to, to grow in your motivations as you minister. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, first of all. And I want you to see the connection between God's sovereign working and the powerful proclamation of the gospel along with the the godly life. So, look at verse 2. 1 Thessalonians, two, First Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. All right, so Paul has this confidence. He says, I know that God, in his sovereignty, has chosen the Thessalonian church here for salvation. He's chosen you. Well, how did Paul know that? How did he know that, that, that they were chosen people to be saved by God, that they were loved savingly by God? Verse 5, because their gospel came to this church, this Thessalonian people, not just with words, not just with with words that came out of the mouth of the preacher, hit the, the, the eardrums of the listener, and then fell to the ground. That's not what happened. When God chooses a people for salvation, the words come out of the messenger's mouth, but they're not just words. They come in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So these people received the gospel and turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven like it says in verses 9 and 10. But notice what else happened. It wasn't just that the word of the gospel came in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction, but look at the second half of verse 5. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I love that phrase. The Spirit of God powerfully enabled Paul and Silas and Timothy, this missionary team, to live uniquely selfless, godly lives for the sake of those people, so that those people would see the godliness of these men's lives and be drawn to believe the gospel. You see how that works? It's all the work of the Spirit of God. When He decides to, to bring someone to salvation, He will send to them a gospel messenger who will preach with power and spirit and conviction, but also live a godly life before them. And then Paul explains in chapter 2, what kind of life that looked like in his heart, in his motives. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For you know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't fruitless or empty, like we said before. We had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, and we had boldness in our God to declare to you the word of God, the gospel of God, in the midst of much affliction. And look at what God did in their hearts. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. That's the kind of men they proved to be so that the gospel message would be convincing. Keep going. For we never came with words of flattery, verse 5. As you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. God shaped Paul's motives. God shaped Paul's means of delivering the gospel. Verse 6, we didn't even seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All right, stop there. I don't want to get to verse 13 yet. That's the climax. So think about this. God chooses this precious people group in the city of Thessalonica. And he sends to them gospel messengers. And he empowers the word of the gospel to them so that they are convicted and converted. And in the process of that, he sends men who are all that you just read. Selfless. Serving laboring, gentle, affectionate, and yet holy and righteous and so on. Isn't that astounding? That's, isn't that the longing of our hearts? God, make me a faithful communicator of the gospel, but one whose life is filled with selflessness in ministry. Now, what happened then? After God did all of that by His sovereign choosing love, Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. See, that, that's what God does. That's what God does in the salvation of those whom he has chosen. What a precious example we have there. He was enabled by the Holy Spirit to minister the gospel selflessly, and men and women there were converted. Now, how do we get to our own motives? Do you ever think about your motives? Do you think beyond your actions and your words? I think that's the first step. Prayerfully recognize your motives. Now, when you prayerfully recognize them, you begin to see what you haven't seen before behind things that you say and do. And so then I would encourage you not just to seek to recognize them, but to pray about them. Bring them to the Lord in prayer. Confess those selfish motives behind ministry. Confess them and ask Him to replace them with Christ-like motives. Motives like this that we see by the Spirit of God in the life of the Apostle Paul. Inform your motives. Inform your motives with texts like this. Don't just look at the actions. Look at the motives behind what these faithful men of God were doing and speaking. So recognize your motives. Pray about your motives. Inform your motives. Avoid being paralyzed by your motives, though. Because sometimes you think about your motives, you're like, well, I can't get good motives on the table today, so I'm not doing anything. Well, that's not the right approach either, is it? We know that as fallen, sinful creatures, even though we're in Christ, our motives are probably always going to be mixed, aren't they? And so what do we do? We, we proceed in obedience with love for Christ. And then as we go into the ministry moment, we say, God, please, please take my motives in your hands and change them so that they honor you and that your word is, is demonstrated by my life and my heart. And trust God then to transform and purify our motives. Nine. Nine, labor to unburden others. Labor to unburden others. Paul was willing and eager to work very hard in the proclamation of the gospel in order to help people to be undistracted and unburdened by financial costs even as they heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ from him. Here's some few verses that, that demonstrate this. He labored, he worked so hard by God's grace to unburden others in the gospel ministry. Acts 28, 30 and 31. He lived there in Rome two whole years what? Isn't that something? Did you ever notice that? The last two verses of the book of Acts. At his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Again, what do we see here? 
Paul working very hard, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 15. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though he didn't take his, himself glory for that. He attributed to the grace of God. But notice this here, 1 Thessalonians 2.9. We just read this. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day. Why? So that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul did not want to financially burden this mission field. He wanted to give the gospel to them freely. And so he preached and worked at the same time in order to do so. This is one of the reasons why I don't like church fundraisers, by the way. That we go to the community and we say, hey, can you give us money to go on this mission trip? So in other words, you pay us so that we can give the gospel to you. That's not what Paul did. He worked night and day. He worked hard by the power of the Spirit to proclaim the gospel and to give it away freely. In fact, all of 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1-27, through he explains that. Again, it's not wrong for an elder to be paid to do gospel ministry. We all know that. We've talked about this before. Paul says those who live by the gospel ought to be supported by the gospel. But I'm saying something that Paul denied himself, even those rights and privileges, in order to unburden and, and help people to not be distracted by that as they heard the gospel from him. What a selfless heart Paul had. Here's another text, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6-9. through Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right. He talks about that, like I said, in 1 Corinthians 9. So certainly read that chapter this week if you want to get Paul's theology of being paid for gospel ministry. But he says, it's not because we do have the right. Yeah, we have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. This is, this is Paul's heart. Um, listen to this. I thought I wrote this quote down. There it is. No, that's, well, that's coming. Never mind. So here, here's something I want you to consider. That the Lord would enable us even to think about what costs are involved in ministry. That the Lord would enable us and cause us to desire to even work harder by His grace and do personally costly things. Paul doesn't just talk about costly things in terms of working to financially support himself to Proclaim the gospel. He also talks about taking on additional restrictions in the law of God. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 9 talks about that again. Or doing things that to him culturally are uncomfortable, though they are not outside of God's law. To do personally costly things so that we may unburden others and help others to be unrestricted as we proclaim the gospel to them. May we not be misled by our wealthy, entitled culture or our selfish hearts so that we may refuse to sacrifice much for others or so that we demand much from others and cause them to be burdened and distracted as we speak the gospel to them. May we prove to be men and women like Paul, enabled by Christ, pointing others to the gospel with our selfless lives. That's that's a goal. That's something we can pray for, that the Lord would lead us in that way. Finally this morning, Resilience in various circumstances. What I see in the life of the Apostle Paul is that he is content in any situation. Uh, Turn to Philippians chapter 4. A text that I think we're all very very familiar with. Philippians chapter 4, 10 through verse 20. We often pull verse 13 right out of this text and divorce it from its context and and really miss some of its meaning here. And so I I think it's important that we see it right where it's supposed to be. Philippians 4 verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, 
For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Nor that I, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to please let your eyes fall on verse 12. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Can we say that same thing? I know how to live for God's glory when I have much. And I also know how to live when I have hunger. We don't know that side so much, do we? That's a prayer that we can pray that the Lord would give us that Paul demonstrated. It didn't matter. In fact, he's writing this letter from prison, isn't he? This is one of his prison epistles. Whether he had a lot in his money bag or had nothing and was wondering where his next meal was coming from, Paul could do all of that. He could do it. I know how to, I know how to live like this. I know how to be content in it, he says in verse 11. How could he? How could he? Verse 13, that's where this verse fits. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. That's an amazing, that's an amazing connection, isn't it? Because he knew the truth of verse 19, didn't he? And believed it. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul was resilient in various circumstances because he was resting in the strength of God, in the strength of Christ. He was resting in trusting the provision of God for him. And uh, therefore, he was content in any situation. And also then, in that situation, he was concerned with eternal things. You see that back in chapter 1. Philippians 1, verse 12 through 18. Again, remember, he's in prison. And he is telling the Philippian people, basically, don't be discouraged by my landing in prison here. I want you to know, verse 12, brothers, that what has happened to me, being brought into prison here in Rome, has really served to advance the gospel. This is good. This is good. I'm content with this. I see what God has planned in this. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, others who maybe felt afraid to speak the gospel in Rome heard, hey, Paul's in prison for speaking the gospel? Well, let's get it together. What are we complaining about? Let's preach the gospel too. The Spirit of God will enable us. And Paul rejoiced in that. Though, he said in verse 15, some preach Christ from, every, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, Paul was concerned with eternal things, with the salvation of those around him in prison, with the boldness of, of gospel proclamation outside of prison from others. That was his focus. This is so very important. Paul realized that God sovereignly and freely gives and takes, shifts and maneuvers earthly possessions and circumstances around his servants in order to accomplish his eternal plans. Therefore, Christ would supply to him the strength to endure any situation and supply to him the insight to use any situation for the advancement of his gospel purposes. Don't you want to think like that? 
in any situation. That's the way Paul thought by the Spirit of God. I want to think like that. I want you to think like that too as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you believe that God is able and willing to supply all of your need in every situation? Do you believe that God, that Christ will strengthen you for any situation? Yes. Do you believe that God has eternal saving purposes planned that are advanced through the reorienting of your circumstances? Yes. Paul believed those things with great conviction and rejoiced in them. And so may we learn to do the same as well. Well, as we close this morning, let's remember the main point again. By the power of Christ's Spirit and grace, let us imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. And as you think on that, remember, brothers and sisters, we are new covenant believers. God has taken out our heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh so that we look at these things and are any of us saying, I don't want anything to do with that. No, we look at these things and we say, I want that. I want to be like that. Spirit of God, please make me like that. That's the response of a new covenant believer's heart. And you know what? God desires to work in us, to will and to work for His good pleasure. My friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would encourage you to to come today, talk with me. I'd be happy to show you from God's Word how you can know Christ and have your sin forgiven to teach you the joy of walking in God's ways so that you can have a new heart too. And you can know the joy of eternal life when you die. I would encourage you, if you don't know that, if you don't know that you are in Christ today, please do not leave without knowing and and giving some time to hear the gospel. One of us would love to share it with you. Would you come and talk with me? I'd be happy to take you aside or, or, or introduce you to someone that you can Go privately with, maybe even to the prayer room, and and hear the gospel and be saved. Come today if that's you. Let's stand together and let's pray in closing. Father, we are rejoicing in this precious example of the Apostle Paul in his life. And Father, I think I can speak for my brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room that when we look through these things, we we say, oh, how far short I fall from that example. But Father, we also say, I want to be like that. I want to be like Christ. I want to be like Paul as he was like Christ. So Father, we look to You to work in us. We look to You to put the provisions for growth in front of us. You are our shepherd. We are not even the shepherd of our own spiritual growth in Christ. You are the shepherd. You lead us in paths of righteousness. Father, we, we confess to you that we fall short in ministry and in our, in our living. And we confess that to you and we ask for cleansing because of Christ. But we stand up in your grace, in your abundant grace, knowing that you through your word and through suffering will produce in us endurance and character, and hope, and shamelessness, confidence in your love. Father, do a good work in us for your glory, we pray. We ask this all through our mediator, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose in our behalf. Amen.